Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. The How Dare You Podcast contains explicit language. You have been forewarned. Blah, 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 blah. Blah. Bitch. Fuck. Bitch. Fuck. Bitch. Fuck. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Planet of the Apes edition. My name is Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, the man who believes we're watching the best of the apes movie, as do I, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Hello, Tom! Sick bay is almost empty except for a mauled fox cub, a deer with pneumonia, and a depressed gorilla. (laughs) Now, there's a lot of comedy in this movie, and for me... So much. For me, it all lands. Yes. Uh, That's the secret of this movie, is the ability to transition into comedy without overdoing it. Well, because the, uh, the front half of this movie... Yeah is the comedy portion of the movie and and it's just gem after gem after gem. Yeah. And what's just, amazing it, to me is mm. the ability for the movie to then transition into yeah. something else and still work. Right. They they it's very organic. They mine the comic potential in the, in the characters in the story and they always pull back from the brink when it when it gets too much. Mhm. Uh and then as you say the, uh, a much darker movie kind of creeps up on you beautifully yeah um and uh and then you know it it finds its place amongst the uh the pantheon of 1970s science fiction i'll say which is hopelessly bleak (laughs) (laughs) and i mean hopelessly it's really funny uh uh, i think i said in a previous episode i've been watching the behind the planet of the apes um documentary and interestingly enough ricardo multibon has a great talking head interview in that where he said you know these endings were incredibly bleak but by the time we got to escape from the planet of the apes the audience just accepted it because it was a series convention Uh like we've had this is the third in a row nobody expected any different and i find that fascinating like you you formulize the idea of an unhappy ending and for your own audience. <laughs> yeah. For your own audience. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly all the, you know, all the things we understand more generally about Hollywood cinema don't apply anymore. Like That's this fantastic. is like, it's like an expectation. The audience what, yeah, like, right, right. seeking it out by going back to these movies that like, it would be a huge disappointment if we got anything else. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about the 1971 film Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Directed by Don Taylor, Tom. Yes. Uh, he, he directed, uh, you know, movies we know. Tom Sawyer, the original uh, island of Dr. Moreau. Damien, The Omen 2. <laughs> and if you remember this, The Final Countdown. I don't remember that one, but Damien, uh, Omen 2 is... Uh... 
is a movie I've seen a lot of. Yeah, and I'm uh, sure. <laughs> the guy, it, it doesn't surprise. I didn't. I didn't know that offhand, and it doesn't surprise me because that uh, in that in that same documentary I was talking about, he puts it perfectly. He said, "I inherited everything except the story. I lucked mm-hmm. out. I got an original story." Yeah. So right. he un- he understood what how you negotiate old and new in a sequel. I'll say. Yeah. Well, this movie has uh, this is the high watermark, by the way. So we both think yeah. this is the best movie in the series. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, for whatever it's worth, bears that out. Seventy-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So this is the high watermark for the series. Well, for the sequels. Yeah. Uh, budget of two point five million dollars. In the USA and the world, $12.3 million spent one week at number one. Like I said, all of these movies had at least one week at number one in the box mm. office. Standing. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, <laughs> it it was uh, it was interesting because they they remained popular, but they were slightly less popular each time. Right. Which... <laughs> the studio took as a cue to cut their budget by every time, <laughs> like half their budget every time. So we're, we're dealing with another re- reduced budget here because they didn't get that original plan of the Apes box office, which seems very cruel to me, but, uh, right. Um, because as we know now, the, the ability to keep a series successful is just like, you know, lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, but I guess the one thing they have going for them is the nature of the story, the yeah. actual plot of this movie. They built so the story. Does, ar- they built the yeah. story around minimizing, you know, the things that right. would be expensive, like uh, um, fantasy sets and ape right. appliances, um, locations. Yeah, they were basically from top to bottom. This movie is smart about everything it does. It it's not too. It's not. Too ambitious, but it's also not too conservative. Right. It's yeah. right in the pocket. Well, and right right up front, we have an impasse, because we got a cold open before the credits, baby. Oh, listen, I have two separate anecdotes about this. Okay. This cold open. And I'm just going to go, like, I'm just going to go into it. Right? I love it, by the way. Like, the cold open, to me, master stroke. God, I love it. Yeah, I but I'm I'm going to I'm going to blow your mind as to like a way of seeing this cold open that is that is even better than you would imagine. All right. Okay, my first anecdote is that like is me when I did a um a Planet of the Apes marathon at my uh, apartment back in England in <laughs> 2000 and something. Uh again, like you showing people who'd never seen these movies before. And like yeah. everything, and you know, we just finished beneath the planet of the apes. We, you know, we queued up escape from the planet of the apes. But you had to have at least a little talk about the batshit craziness of what you just <laughs> but, saw, right? Well, it was just you know, it was just like <laughs> go straight from one to the other. Um, okay. <laughs> and then you know, um, that w- the one of the uh, people who was there, my uh, my old friend Tom Hughes, just kind of turned to me and went, "Wait a minute, what could this? What is this movie going to be about?" <laughs> <laughs> like, this suddenly dawned on him as the movie was starting you know we get the lapping waves it's like what like where and when is this movie and you know i said you know guess where's this movie gonna go now right. he had no foreknowledge 
and he said, well, okay, what if Planet of the Apes is just one country and the other countries of the world are not Planet of the Apes? And I responded by saying, that is way better than what they came up with. <laughs> <laughs> and then just as I said that, the helicopter came into view. It was like, oh, okay. Got it, got <laughs> That's it. That's amazing. That's the first anecdote. The second anecdote is how I, f- how I first saw this movie, which was late night on TV without knowing what the movie was, that it was an apes movie, that it was this apes movie. I can't remember. Did you say you'd see them all out of order or had you seen the original? Yeah, first, yeah. This or... was prob- this was, I think uh, I saw Beneath and Battle and then I think this was the next one. Conquest was the one I saw last. Okay. You know, just a... <laughs> Just to fuck it all up. <laughs> Just to fuck up an already fucked up chronology. Yeah, that's a real ape salad there. But, you know, I had no idea what the movie was that was even starting. And so <laughs> when when they lifted those astronaut heads <laughs> and there were apes underneath, I I, I mean, I kept that it, this is the optimum viewing condition for this movie. And I think in the early 70s, you would have a better chance of wandering into the movie theater without having any preconceptions of what this was going to be. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're saturated with pre-publicity now with movies. It's like even the trailers of movies tell you everything you need to know about going in, but that's just not the case. Um, So it was something akin to that, that you're going in, seeing a cold open, completely cold, which I don't think I've ever done anywhere else <laughs> right, right. in my life. But that is the perfect way to see this, because what I did not know what was going to be under that helmet. Like, in, yeah, a very, I mean... in a real sense, human, ape, you know, I didn't even know what this movie was about. You right. know, it could have been a surfing movie, for all I know. Starting with the lapping waves, you know. Yeah. And the helicopter. But it's funny because, like, I had the total opposite experience. Yeah. <laughs> where you see, even when you just see the craft in the water, I'm like, oh, I know where I know what's going on. Well, I was trying to put, but I was also trying to put myself in in the mindset of people who knew this was a Planet of the Apes movie, had seen the previous movie, and were trying to figure out what this would be. Right. And I assume they'd think that one of the ast- that yeah one of the astronauts came back in time, but it was still an it was still going to be a human astronaut when they took the helmet off, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what I that's what I would go to. And I just I mean you know I love the fact we're back at the beach. Mm-hmm. So far, both sequels have begun here. It's a really nice way of you know, uh, connective tissue. Connective tissue for two movies that don't make sense in a linear chronology. Yeah, right, exactly. And the, but then you know, for two we, movies that aren't connected almost at all. But even better, it's then revealed to be a fake out because the lapping, the sound of the lapping waves is replaced by the sound of a helicopter. So yeah. we go, you know, we're in modern day, um, and. You know they take they take their they really milk this salvage operation. Oh, it's it's wonderful because because you know they're just they're just offsetting this the gratification for the audience. Yeah, and you're literally the end. You know you would be going, what the hell is this gonna be? And then there's right. all this unnecessary military protocol. But I also had like the real <laughs> sense almost immediately that we were gonna be 
in a different movie because for me, just seeing the army guys, yeah, totally basically doing they may as well have been doing the hut 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 from Blues Brothers. They, well, they also look like the cast of the Phil Silver show, <laughs> which probably would have been the reference point at the time with M.M. at Walsh's, you know, um, thick black rimmed right. glasses. Right. Uh, oh, man. I, I I just had the best chuckle. And then again, the timing on, you know, the... the, the uh, and the colonel who... Well, go ahead. No, well, they, they take the they take the astronauts' helmets off. It's revealed to be not only apes, but also apes we know. Right. Cornelius yeah. and Seal is like a double double surprise, and then immediately Jerry Goldsmith's uh, music funk soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> comes straight in, and we have the you know the the credit over. The credits um, of the leads are over their close-ups. Yes, I mean every choice here is superb. It's it's it. it well, yes, a it's superb, but it it just so smacks of uh, television. Yes, at that time, you That's know, true. like yes, with the names over. The, the actors themselves and oh man it's also I and mean, you know it's the return of roddy mcdowell which for this series is, is a big deal he sat the right. last movie out so we know we're getting roddy <laughs> it's a guarantee that they will get we'll get actual roddy mcdowell not just yeah. surrogate roddy mcdowell in uh in the movie and and then we get you know we get into a, a sequence that is entirely silent really with i mean in terms of dialogue but the music is doing all the heavy lifting. Yeah, And right. this score, I mean, Jerry Goldsmith, he gets accolades for his original Planet of the Apes score because it was way ahead of its time right? in terms of using soundscapes um, rather than orchestral compositions. But here, the way, I think it's just as impressive the way he takes the basics of that score and then overlays music and that was relevant. And it. Yeah, well, he, he, makes it, he makes it relevant to 1972, yeah. So we have funk, we have uh, psychedelic music, and, you know, Latin guitar, which, interestingly, we get the licks of the Spanish guitar as Ricardo Montalban's name is. On I know, credits, which I think yeah, is, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if that was fortuitous, but it works uh, It works beautifully. And it just made me think about, in a modern movie, this scene would be full of, like, all that placeholder dialogue we saw in The Dark Knight. But mm -hmm. they make the choice here to just use music to cover everything. Well, the the and the thing that occurs to me, especially when we watch older movies, because if this movie was made today, that scene would yeah. be twenty eight minutes. <laughs> You're right. You're you right know? about that. Uh, and yeah, it's it's just I mean, it's just a it's just a magnificent opening from top to bottom. It's pitch perfect. It is pitch perfect. Like, I love the moment when they take their helmets off, we see that they're apes, and then the sort of look on the colonel's face. Well, even the look on their faces as well, like their confusion yeah. as to what's going on, because <laughs> that's the, the great... just kind of, hmm. It's like everyone... Yeah, he's everyone like, I gotta is... call the president about this one. <laughs> Every... <laughs> everyone in the scene is reacting as the audience is. I think that's the key to it. It's like... Right. Okay, this is the situation, but why? <laughs> <laughs> and the first third of the movie is really about coming coming to coming to grips with this 
this story U-turn we've taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know... we're going to the zoo. We're going to the zoo where there is this depressed gorilla, which sounds like a... I mean, this is why, <laughs> you know, it's... You, Again, I think I don't know why we're slamming modern movies here, but I feel like if this was a a terrible modern movie, they would have said the de- depressed gorilla line would have just been a throwaway. Nope, the depressed gorilla is one of the major players major, in this story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like a major plot point. Um, and it, it's um, M. Emmett Walsh delivers that line and. Again, he's not leaning into the comedy. And then when we get into the zoo... Oh, some... I love the bit with the oranges. I was just going to say, Roddy McDowell, oh. again, not overplaying it. Sublime. Letting the comedy speak for itself. Yeah, exactly. Take, you know, every time they hand him an orange, he puts one away and holds his hand out and again. And puts his paw like, out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they sit, you know, they sit down. But also and... with, like, a look on his face. Like, you could... Because, as an audience member, because you know... That they can speak and that they're so yeah. intelligent and that they were the masters of their own universe, you could see behind his eyes. Yeah, you know, I, it's just a mas- master stroke of performance from, it really from is. Roddy McDowell. It's amazing. I think the the only thing that lets this scene down is the the Halloween costume gorilla. Yes, and, exactly. You know, you put that in con- the context of the of the because that gorilla budget. looks like the Trading Places gorilla. <laughs> but it's you know it's a sad irony in a movie that is uh, you know that has three of the the best looking apes in cinema that yeah. that you know when <laughs> that that they skimp in other areas right um, and you know but I mean this is a complete refocus for the series as well because Cornelius and Zira are now the stars of the franchise mm-hmm. and that's never I mean they were basically a cameo in the last movie right so we have kind of role reversal yeah. And we have another, and we have a new ape character, mm-hmm. played by a fairly big star, Salmoneo from Rebel Without a Cause and Giant. Right. Um, and you know his name's his name is kind of buried in the titles, and you know he has He's limit- Milo. My yeah, he has limited screen time. Right. Um, and apparently he hated being in the ape. Spoiler making. alert. Yeah. But, the gorilla uh, gets him. Yeah, but uh, but I mean, when it's just the three of them, that you know, that dynamic is so good between, between mm-hmm. the three of them, and uh, I always think it's a little bit of a shame that he's he's killed off so so quickly in yeah, the movie. Yeah. But you know, all the, but you also know that the the uh, chemistry between Hunter and McDowell is so good that that's going to carry the movie too. So right. it's kind of win win because it does it needs to happen. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. And we have to, we have to at least offset the. But that's like you know what's happening. You know, be, because the dynamic between them is so great, you'd like to have a little bit more of it. But you have to respect that this movie understands what yeah. it needs to do. Right, right. I think yeah. that's the that's the that's the key to it. Um, and immediately, again, like picking up from from the last movie, where I think there was you know hints of the influence of feminism and the women's movement, like Zira's in charge from moment one, one of this movie. Yeah. And, uh, I love the scene with she, the intelligence tests. She remains the, I find those depressing because I feel like I would struggle with some of those. <laughs> My short term memory is not that good. 
I know Zira's like you know a, a regarded as a scientific genius in in her in her society, in her own society. But I find it dep- she is still a she's still an ape, and I find it depressing that 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 I would struggle with the same challenges, which are meant to be the most basic <laughs> challenges you could give to an animal. <laughs> um, but well, it, the you, only one I felt I would struggle with was the second one. Yeah, the 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 fight like when when. It was like pointing to four blocks, and now here's 30 blocks. Find the blocks. But, like, putting the blocks away, I'm like, I could do that. Creating the thing to get the banana, I could do that. The first one where it's like, I'll show you three. Now here's five. Pick the three. I I could do that. But We get our first black mark against the human race here, I think, with uh, the um, Arthur the zookeeper. Yeah. Who, the first thing he says is, female's a bit uppity. Right, and uh, I like the fact that you know it's like they they're using um, sexism as a way of of like characterizing bad humans. I like that right. a lot. I mean, that's very yeah. that's really that's because really I was just good. gonna say. I mean, it feels so purposeful. Oh, it re- it really does. Um, and I mean, I think we alluded to this before, but in beneath the Planet of the Apes, we had a an archetypal surrogate, well, actually two archetypal surrogates. Here we have an archetypal inversion. Yeah. It is, it's the mirror image of the original Planet of the Eights movie. Right. And the, the the bigoted zookeeper is one of the first real signs of that, that we're going to mm-hmm. flip everything on its head. We've already flipped the, we the concept on its head. Right. Um, but we're actually going to do that character to character as well. We're going to have a human equivalent of every ape and an ape equivalent of every human. Because the two doctors they meet yep. are essentially their counterparts. <laughs> They're yep. them. Two sympathetic medical professionals. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, which I think is... Um, it's great. And, you know, we already know that... there's al- But there's also some great notes of continuity. We know that Zira's hot for human penis. Um, from the first movie and you know immediately she's like I like you yeah Uh, but this time they up the ante because Cornelius joins in I mean no surprise there Roddy McDowell's back but you know (laughs) he straightened his I have from the beginning (laughs) yeah exactly Um, don't think for a second I didn't I always did (laughs) yeah and they walk later on in the movie it's great they walk back that uh that misremembering from the previous movie about Taylor. So in the previous yeah, exactly. movie, he says, we love Taylor. This one, he says, we learned to love Taylor. Right. And I think it's so, like a screenwriter at some point is like, it was Charlton Heston and he was difficult. He was, he was a bit of a dick. He was difficult to work with. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's take our first break and then we're going to come back and we'll talk, maybe we'll talk presidential commission. Oh, Yeah. I'm, Love I'm, it. I can't wait to get into the president. And... <laughs> All right. We'll be right back, everybody. I like to think I know something about beer. But nowadays, even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. 
Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beer. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing the Don Taylor film Escape from the Planet of the Apes. So when we last left Tom, we were uh, saying we were going to talk presidential commission. Mm -hmm. Like, just another scene I love. Yeah, another great inversion. They mm -hmm. they have three, three human actors who look just like the three apes who uh, try... Taylor, Taylor in the original yeah. movie, and they have them posed exactly the same. The same, sort of right? Hear, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil formation <laughs> from the original movie. Exactly. And we have a human Doctor Zaius in Doctor Hasline. I mean, that's made right. abundantly clear that that he is the human version of Zaius, given his role in the government and right his later villainy. And he's and good. You know, I tell you what, and I haven't mentioned James Bond for a while. If if for, for a some... while we're twenty three minutes into the episode, for for some <laughs> for some uh, you know by some bizarre drink copy... everybody drink if by for some bizarre copyright reason the European copyright on James Bond expired in the seventies. This would be my choice for the guy to play. Oh yeah, and like a, a middle European James Bond. <laughs> Later in the movie, where the way he handles that uh, tape recorder in the cigarette case, mm -hmm. so smooth. <laughs> that could have been his screen test for, for James Bond. It's better than Sam Neill's. See, I'll but I think that. he'd also be a great Bond villain. Uh, it's he's just he's just excellent. And even before that, I mean this this series is good at these offbeat supporting characters or interesting supporting characters, rich supporting characters. Um, mm -hmm. but we get a ton of them in this movie. Um, and the first one for me is the president himself, who right. I think is just, I mean, it's a, actually overall a really bar balanced version of, you know, a commander in chief. And once Watergate happens, you won't get that kind of balance again in American cinema yeah, exactly. for a while. This is sort of the last stand of the... The idea that politicians kind of care about things like facts and facts and diplomacy, but we still see that kind of self-interest um, mm -hmm. at the same time. So it's a really interesting, rich portrayal of a commander-in-chief, like a kind of Martin Sheen, you know, West Wing kind right. of thing. It's like all, <laughs> exactly. it's all the tensions of that role kind of put together. But I love the fact that he finds the most entertaining way to tell the Joint Chiefs about 
the existence of talking apes. <laughs> he could have told them in any possible way. And he does the, the most entertaining version of that. Which, well, tell our um, audience what he does. Well, he waits until he he waits until the very end to reveal that the astronauts. He just keeps calling them the astronauts yeah. until the very end, until the last possible moment that he reveals that they're talking apes. Great. Um, it's just, uh, and then we get that round the new round the world news buffet. Yes, which is right. again like like everything in this movie. It's nearly airplane, but it just pulls back at the brink. Yeah, <laughs> because it's actually kind of. It's fairly necessary because we're 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 ensconced at the beginning of this movie and in, in the comedic portion of this movie, and so so yeah. much of, um, and and that's and that's what because you can see the clear parallel to the first movie with that presidential commission. Yes. But what I love about it is it's the opposite completely in the sense that the people who are being tried are also charming people to an extent yeah. that the people in the gallery are getting up and clapping for them. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's wonderful. It it is, yeah, and and ev- so ev- everything's like, everything's a little bit romanticized. Yeah, right. But you're also aware of the danger beneath that. It's kind of like, like the when, apes when... are gidget, <laughs> like yeah. seeing the city. You know, <laughs> like oh no, that's a, I mean, uh, it's both it's both gidget. It was, works on three levels. It's gidget. Uh, it's um. A way of intradiegetically talking about how the popular celebrity of the Planet of the Apes movies has kind of captivated right. American culture, which is you know what this movie did, um, and also you know the, the 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 scenes of them being taken around Los Angeles are, are taken from the original Pierre Boulle novel. Oh, okay, um, Monkey Planet. They're based on. Sp- you know that the, that's exactly what happens when the human goes to the planet of the apes. He's kind of taken around and becomes a celebrity. So they were specifically basing it on on that um, on actual events from that novel. Oh, um, I love the uh, clothing montage, buying clothes <laughs> montage. I I think I think it's I had great. no idea that women could just sit on a couch as other women tried on the clothes for them and modeled them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least that's what Hollywood tells me happens. Yeah, exactly. You know, in movies like Funny Face. Uh, I don't know how how close that is to reality. We'll have to ask a woman. That could right. be a new segment. Ask a woman. <laughs> Boy, do we need that segment. Right. Um, and yeah, I... I <laughs> once... Uh, once we get to... Um, yeah, we're so we're aware that this media appropriation is kind of fickle it's superficial yeah right and we get those hints of where this is going to break down you know hasline cottoning on to zira nearly saying that she dissects humans yeah in front exactly. of in front of the world's press and a presidential commission <laughs> you know it's like and we you, it, it that's so subtly placed that you almost forget about it and uh, uh, you realize well they're gonna, gonna bring it back it's a trail of breadcrumbs for this movie becoming something very very different and and much more serious yeah um, here's where they also flesh out the idea of how they're here in the first place or in the last place. So this is the this is yeah. the one thing that's completely batshit crazy about this movie. It's just the whole well, premise it's... of how this happened. You know, like you can't ignore the idea that 
apparently <laughs> Brent shows up. Right. They send him away, and then I guess they must have immediately gone to the I was just going to say, in my head canon, Brent shuts the door of Cornelius Cornelius and Zero House, and Milo Milo comes in through the back door because there isn't a second to spare. Guess what I found in the ocean? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like real sitcom style. (laughs) Oh, Milo. Milo? What is this? Milo and his crazy schemes. And yeah, just the I mean, idea that they would, uh, you know, that they have the the fortuity to know that uh, they're going to go searching for the bomb, that the bomb will, of course, the, the, yeah. the Earth Destroyer will destroy the Earth and that they have to get on a plane and travel back in time. This is actually the That's most... That's a lot. Pro- yeah, it is a lot. But in its defense, firstly, it's all relative. This is actually the least retconny part of this movie right because of what happens later um the for me it's not that it doesn't make sense it's that the timeline is too crushed to be plausible right exactly but that's true on both sides like we're in you know present day 1972 and three years ago that they sent the most advanced spaceship ever you know the likes of which we've still not seen now into space mm-hmm so the timelines are crushed on both sides to make this story work, which I I don't mind so much. You have no, you have yeah, to, I don't mind at all. But you you have to sort of do. But what I but what I love about what it does is first, let's not forget it's taken a film series that had literally nowhere to go and took and it somewhere. Bro- <laughs> yeah, and took yeah. it somewhere. But also, rather than and rather than them sort of because you could see a version of this in which they they forgot about the nuclear blast or tried to talk about it as little as possible because of the narrative problems it causes. Halloween for they actually They actually do the opposite. Right. In that they they make the the nuclear blast that happened in the last movie and will happen in the future of this movie is where all the stakes in the movie come from. Mm -hmm. Because that's what makes Hasline want to take those two apes out of commission. Out of commission. And it's... (laughs) So, so it's it's bold in many ways, you know. And, and it's bold. It pushes the boundaries of plausibility. It, uh, you know, it defies logic in terms of continuing a series that had nowhere to go, and um, you know, it it bring it brings a a plot point that causes nothing but trouble into play as the most important thing in the movie, right it's it's astounding it's a, it's a magic trick of screenwriting it really is <laughs> and you know it was uh, it 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 was it was crazy that they were asked to do a sequel but the studio had no compunction doing it and and the and the burden was all on them to find a way to do it and and this is the best possible and a solution. way they found they did yeah they yeah. found a way uh, so I, I, it's just just kind of micro liberties with the timeline that right that keeps the last movie in canon, but it also, which is the amazing part to me. Right, like, so it keeps. I with would the just last take movie. that out of canon, yeah, and move on. But they don't even do that. But, it, but what I like about it is not only does it keep with the last movie, but it keeps with the tone of the beginning of this movie. Yes, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
because because there's this moment where you think to yourself, now wait a second, how could they and what and and then you you imagine Roddy well, McDowell like, putting his paw out for the orange, and you're like, you know what, I don't even care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, there's a sense of you know everyone's confused, right? <laughs> the apes are confused as why they're there. The people are very confused as to why there are apes talking apes from the future. So it's like we're all in the same boat. <laughs> I think that's why it works. It's because we're all we all have the same level of incomprehension, both well, audience and characters. Yeah. <laughs> and considering what's going to happen in the next movie, in terms of justifications, this is nothing. That's right. That's right. Uh, or even later on in this movie. Um, you know, another, another, another great, uh, addition here is that like, it's not, it's not quite, we're not quite in paradox territory yet, but there's a few hints of what I, what will be, uh, I will continue to call paradoxical continuity, which is the next three (laughs) movies are basically all that. Um, Dr. Hasline this is a new fra- this is another phrase where well yeah but it only applies to the series cementing <laughs> this and maybe the terminator movies yeah we don't know um, that for sure um dr hasline uh named the hasline curve which took taylor and brent right into the future so the 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 whole reason that the apes are here is because of something that is named after Dr. Hasline. Right, so yeah. We're already getting the sense that, that time is sort of becoming cyclical in the storytelling in this yeah. franchise. And they do that in a really uh, neat way. And then they try to explain time travel to the viewer. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure they're entirely successful. <laughs> I, I personally think they've gone with the wrong metaphor. Or they've led with the wrong metaphor of a, of a painter... Looking at a picture, painting of, him, of a painting, paint, a painting of a painting. Um, to me, I don't know how you feel I, about this, but the idea of infinite regression seems to be utterly irrelevant to any anything that's happening here. In the moment, I so appreciated this yes. attempt. Like, <laughs> like I, I so appreciated yeah. the attempt. It's education for education's sake, and I right. love that aspect of yes, it. Yes, exactly. But it has nothing to do with how the apes got, got here. here. It's, just, exactly. it's a distraction. <laughs> it's a big distraction. <laughs> but it's one that leaves you a better human being who's more, you know, more educated, more But just learning. the idea of, uh, you know, the idea of, of the person doing the painting becomes the observer and the observed right. sort of the climax of that speech they, they re- yeah and then you go yeah wait how's that <laughs> how, how does that explain anything yeah. uh, well they just they, it, it's just they just buried the lead we spend a lot of time on that we have a, a very complex uh Idea. diagram like yeah. a very complex piece of uh, of um you know painting art uh, to to describe, but we get a long uh, a long lecture from from Doctor Hasline, and then at the end they say, "Well, you know, time is like an infinite number of highways with an infinite number of exits." I'm like, right. "That's all I needed to know." Exactly. <laughs> like jewels in Pulp Fiction. That's all I needed to know. Um, but yeah, I love the fact. I love the digression. 
that you know this oh this, i was delighted what i love it. about these movies is they take the time to 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 educate you um about unfamiliar concepts you know that's what science fiction is all about but but, they <laughs> but also it's, do it in it's like not really playing into the five story. minutes yeah it's wonderful yeah, like good... it's amazing they take it the is. time but they don't bog down in it no it's Here's this for you. We're moving on. We're, mo- we're moving. <laughs> but the only thing you need to know is this idea of, you know, we, we've... Lots of highways. Like, like time right. is, this is relative. Be, but, I mean, this gets muddy as the movies go on because uh, there's a way in which you could look at this movie as already part of its own alternate timeline. Yeah. And it makes more sense, but I don't think that's what they were going for. No, I don't think so either. Because, you know, there's a theory of time travel in which you are part of whatever history you create by going back in time. Right. But I just don't think... I just think it's it's unsophisticated in some of the details, and I think that's more of an illusion. Um, But it's a... Yeah, it's a really... It's a really great moment. Um, but I just love the fact that it falls back, even with this very sophisticated analysis of infinite, <laughs> infinite regression. Yeah. To the point where you could tell other people about infinite regression, you know, which is, of course, the purpose of education. Right. You become the teacher. Yeah. But but then it all comes down to that Star Trek, you know, let's come up with the most everyday metaphor we can think of, you know, like taking air out of a balloon. A balloon. It's, it's an right. infinite number of highways within it. It's like... That's all you really needed, but we've gone we've gone like the the most scenic route to get there. Well, what's great is that you're going down a rabbit hole, but the rabbit hole's like twenty feet long. And you're, yeah. you know, and you just you find your little bar of gold at the bottom, and you're like, oh, this is great. I'll go back. I, I hadn't thought about this before, but I wonder if it is a te- an attempt to kind of like, in the same way that um, Ricardo Montalban scares away the police with his parade of animal facts later in the movie. Yeah. Where there is just an attempt to sort of overwhelm the audience's the brain to the point where yeah. it just, you know, they, their brain, their logic just fuses and they accept Shut down. that this is all Shut, possible. Yeah, exactly. Shut down and accept. Oh, that's um, amazing. I love, uh, it's at this point we get Zira talking back to the television. Yeah. Which is great. I mean, you don't need... I mean, my gran used to do that, so I don't see what's so ridiculous about it. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, they, what's really good about this is it's kind of like, you said it's, you know, it's like television. And this reminds me of like the classic fish out of water comedy, a sort of northern exposure. They've kind of taken the basic idea of a stranger in a strange land, which is its own kind of sci-fi subgenre. Right. But at least for the first half of its movie, it's played in a more situational comedy style. Right. And works incredibly well because... Well, and don't you feel like there's sort of a bridging between the two stories when she starts drinking, too? Because there's this sort of idea of... Because uh, she's pregnant, too. And what it's we know... the, it, the pregnancy and the alcohol, yeah. I think that's when it starts to turn for me, absolutely. Yeah. But because... you also have the sense because it's... Uh, who is it that gives her the... Is it... Uh... Hasline gives her. He gives her. Uh, he yeah. I was gonna say Hasline gives her the first. Well, originally it's um. Uh, I can't remember his name. What uh, do they call it? Grape juice plus. Grape juice plus. Um, originally it's so, human, it, for me, it's it's human like Cornelius that I... who gives it to her originally, but he's the one who gives it to her to make her 
talk right in a sort okay. of uh and li- and lies to her and says this is this will help your baby grow which yeah is such a which great is so villain. evil <laughs> he's so he's like it, it's great like you come out of it going i think he's worse than dr zayas yeah you know, everything well that's what up. i was just gonna say because you have this real sense of of not him just corrupting their innocence but the baby inside her too you know yeah it's 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 really interesting though because I, I in at least in in this movie they're trying to they, they they shade everyone really well and really complexly uh and Hasline's no exception later on in the movie you know he he tells us why he's doing this and his motivations are entirely altru- altruistic yeah he says we need to be activists this is activism i'm you know this is the same as saving the environment to me yeah and i just and that shading well is, it's almost it kind didn't of need like, to be there but to me to me i made to me i made more of uh the connection between uh the apes kind of being like uh global climate change yeah absolutely like that's yeah. what he's attacking he's trying to right which which kind of and it's and it's that same effect of like we have light. to do this now yeah right yeah. now which is absolutely, he's dead on. Even yeah. in 72, he's like dead on about those issues. And it makes you think, oh, well, is he right about, you know, what he's doing to, what he wants to do to Cornelius and Zira? Um, well, but, you know, we're going to find out over the course of the two movies. of You know, like, well, yeah. but I want to save that for Conquest because, man, that's... And one of the things that I think also allows this, this I don't say just comedy, it's like a, a lighter approach to the same subject matter that makes it work is we we haven't forgotten about satire like it's still grounded in satire and allegory i love mm-hmm. the fact that when when the when the humans when the military first come to the the zoo it's very clearly coded as you know generational conflicts between different eras of american yeah you know we have this uptight world war Two. Uh, old guy, old guy, and then these long-haired and vegetarians. The yeah, right. <laughs> Women are in charge. Yeah, uh, and it, you know, like immediately you see that that's crafted. That there's a great moment in the presidential commission where, um, you know, they 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 concede that these are you know intelligent beings, and a priest starts like raises his hand and he says, "We'll get to that <laughs> yeah, later, well... Your Eminence." <laughs> And it's like pay it's paying lip service to the sort of you know how how much religious satire um matters in the previous two movies, but it does so in a very fun way that mm-hmm. is no less interesting. Yeah. Um and I think even with Grape Juice Plus and you know the use of alcohol to sort of loosen Zira's tongue, you know, immediately I'm thinking about, you know, the way that uh, colonialists used alcohol to corrupt indigenous people, mm-hmm. you know, both in America and, you know, in all indigenous cultures all around the world. It's the same story everywhere. You know, you give indigenous people whiskey and cigarettes and you just destroy their civilization. Yeah. Um, and that's, so I, I think that's definitely there. That's underlying all of this. But it's done in this slightly frothier way that is no less grounded in in all the sort of themes and ideas and um and that kind of allegor allegorical style of storytelling that we're used to in the series well that's so what's remarkable that's to me because all the things we're talking about feel so purposeful yeah. and 
And there's such thought behind it, but yeah. behind the veneer of, like you said, this sort of threes company kind of yes. like, you know, sitcom I'm gonna beginning. make it after Yeah, all. exactly. Yeah. Before uh... the movie turns and turns it does. But let's talk about, let's talk about the the turn it takes after, well, yeah. let's take a break and then we'll talk about oh, the dark, yeah, yeah. The dark let's, turn let's... this movie does take. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target. And check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound, But as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target. Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug, the dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target. That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. And we are back once again, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing Escape from the Planet of the Apes, the 1971 almost perfect sequel. Classic. (laughs) So good. The classic sequel inversion before it was classic. Before it was like what we do. (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, that cold open... It made me start to wonder, like, when did when did cold open start becoming a thing? Mm. Probably right then. It's 1971. <laughs> if this was the first movie to do a cold open, it would make me so happy. Mm, yeah, I I think it's uh my 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 operational theory is that the that the sequel cold open comes out of the same tendency of putting a big chunk of the last movie in the yeah at the beginning of the next one it's a, it's a kind of it's a sort of outgrowth of that is what i think because it's usually the cold open is about mediating between the the previous movie and the new movie sure but you know we'll 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 work on that we'll, we got <laughs> we got we have the time and the resources <laughs> to to turn that into a, a you know into a literal equation at some point that's funny <laughs> well so um when we last left we said uh, the movie takes a bit of a dark turn right around the interrogation scene yes i mean you yeah, have hints that's... of it before that but now we're we're knee deep in well, Baddies for me, being the, bad. To me, there's a there's a cup there's a there's a couple of turning points where the you, you get the sense that the comic tone is sort of dissipating. Um, the the prize fight with Cornelius. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Which, which is take one of the one of the scenes that's taken directly from Pierre Bull's novel. Is it? Yeah. 
I mean, obviously flipped, so it's of course humans fighting, not apes fighting. But um, the Cornelius's reaction seems the much horror. more sincere. Yeah. Yes. And then uh, when Zira faints in the museum, mm-hmm. and she reveals that she's pregnant. she's pregnant. I mean, she's already she's already walking around, you know, lots of stuffed apes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and stuffed animals, so it's already a little bit dark. You know, a little bit... Um, the sheen is kind of disappearing a little bit. Sure. And from that point onwards, I think... It's a, it's actually... I mean, in just in terms of screenwriting, it's a great move, because at this point, the plot is spinning its wheels. Yeah. We're just right. getting different variations of the same set pieces, so the movie knows that this is to the move exact on. time <laughs> to change gears. Right. And it does it brilliantly, because... From then on, you know, the, the the lighter part of the movie just sort of recedes into the background. We never see the press again. Mm-hmm. Everything is done behind closed doors. Like, every aspect of the movie that was fun and light is just slowly Gone. disappearing yeah. out of view. And it's lovely. It's great, great screenwriting. Um, well, and then, because within this, you also get this speech from Cornelius about Aldo... <laughs> Which is going to present problems later yes, in the right. series. Did, is that is that what he says? I thought he said Milo. See, this no, because Milo's very... their child. Right. But he says Aldo said no. Oh. And then they ignore it. <laughs> but keep that name within the series. It's, but Aldo does. But Aldo doesn't say no. He just slaps the shit out of someone who did. Well, uh, what I'm saying is, <laughs> Aldo is Caesar. But they decide not to use the name Aldo. Yeah. And Milo. Is. Caesar. Is Caesar right? But but right. should be Aldo. <laughs> okay. Well, so I mean. This they do something which they do in uh, they do at least once in each of these movies, which is when they're recapping previous movies. They they sneak they, in a new piece yeah, of they, mythology, exactly. <laughs> just under the wire, just so under you the almost wire. don't notice. They it. pull the rug out from something that they said in the last movie and change it to yeah. something different. Um, I mean, there's there's a big revelation here is the pet plague. So you, uh, yeah, I I don't rem- I don't even cats. remember. They, it's really something like they, they don't movie. make a big thing of it. I just remember it. it from the next movie. So when do they well, talk yeah, about the pet a, plague? There's a rover memoriam in the next yeah, one. Yeah, it's great. So it's a bit more on the nose. It's um, but here, I mean, here to me, you know, the biggest, the biggest lack of fit in the mythology here is that Cornelius somehow knows both that humans that apes descended from humans. And that that knowledge is freely available to him. And both of those things were not the case in the original Planet of the Apes. Right. The religious authorities forbade that knowledge, suppressed it. Yeah. And, it, and apes in general... Did not know. ...had no awareness that they were descended from humans. So, it's it's a total... But is that what you were referencing for the pet plague? No, they say no. That he t- in part of his as part of his history, he says, uh, "Oh yeah." Um, as part of that narrative, he says, "Dogs and cats died out, and apes got you." You know, and that's how apes got close to humans. 
Wow. And we're okay. in a position to take them over. So they, they plant that seed there. And then see, the next I, movie I, man, I, I didn't even pick up that. on that. And I mean, we'll get there when we get there with conquest, but, but the speech yeah. that Ricardo Montalban has to give, I just thought, uh, and I, I want to say it, but yeah, but I also, but I, I like, so despite rewriting the history of the franchise, which is, you know, not good. And I remember this is still pre VHS. So, you know, there's not the same, right. you don't have that same reference to go back to over and over again easily yeah even if you're a screenwriter um but what they're doing here is essentially laying out the next two movies so this is an this is the sense we get that instead of trying to kill constantly kill off the franchise which is what they did in the last movie they're actually planning ahead this time anticipating that the studio is going to ask them to do a sequel and they won't have written themselves into an enormous corner. Do you think that's it? it, or do you think they went back, watched well, this I know movie, for, and said, I know, "Hey, I know it for I know, I know what we could talk." Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, I know that was specifically behind the scenes. That was why All they right. did. That was why they had a, um, you know, that's why the movie has a plot twist at the end. They wanted to anticipate the studio asking them for a sequel rather than killing off the franchise. Then the studio asking them for a sequel and them not having anywhere to go. Gotcha. So they are. They're like laying out the next two movies almost, you know, in, in pitch form. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're us. Which... <laughs> 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 um, and again, the problem is, as you've laid out, they just shouldn't have been so specific. Yeah. With the details. <laughs> because there's like, they've mentioned things that are going to hamstring the future films. Uh, and we even get a you know classic Imbass before it was classic recapping footage from the first two yeah. movies in sepia as if this is the past <laughs> when it is in fact the future. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that adds nothing. I mean, you happening in their past, in not happening happening in the actual past. Yeah. And you know, again, I give them the benefit of the doubt because you know it's that temporal thing freely... again. You can't freely access those movies in the way that you could now, so it's a bit more justified than when we see exactly the same thing done in a modern day movie. Right. Yeah. I think it is like there is there's more value to it when people literally cannot get a hold of the movies to see. Um. So I I you know I'll give it a pass, but it adds nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that we've not already talked about, and it's best not to remember certain aspects of it. Because we're retconning a lot of it. Well, and then the um, moment that you know that this movie is really going to go somewhere different is when Cornelius actually does kill a human. Yeah, and it's like that. I, I really <laughs> like if you if you're watching this movie not aware of it's gonna go, you won't see that massive gaping head wound coming. No, <laughs> exactly. I mean, we're we're back at you know. Uh, Brent being shot in the head, yeah. kind of territory. It's that level of because I went, violence. holy shit, yeah. Um, and I, I think that's uh, and so so I you know I it, it's 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 a really interesting game that these movies play because they they have a push you know they they go to these extreme uh, ends of violence and gore and then they within a kind of G-rated framework, Mm -hmm. which, you know, up until this point, these movies are all G-rated. But it's this constant push and pull between them. And and this movie has that push and pull figured out, I think. 
of. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, I think they, I think they overdo the friendly friend, friendly side uh, early on in the movie with the gorilla attack. Mm-hmm. We cut to a montage of the animals in the zoo reacting, which again is nearly <laughs> naked gun, but just pulls back at the right. last minute. I would have liked to have seen more of that, but I understand why they did it in that part of the movie uh, to kind of move away from that. Because it's, you know, in sequence, it's like 10 minutes after Charlton Hess, you know, everyone dies and the world blows up yeah. in sequence. So I see why they want to move away from it, but it's a it's a bit too, you know, sensorial, I think, to sort of just see the animals reacting to it. Whereas this, you know, violence comes back with a bang here. And it's the yeah. template for the rest and of it's the, the movie. Te- yeah, exactly. It's the it's the, uh, the 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 jumping off point. And you know when a movie is great, a movie is great when you see a name that you know, like Ricardo Montalban in the credits, <laughs> and you're not ever thinking about, hey, where the fuck is Ricardo Montalban? Yeah, because when he shows up in this movie. I, my note is Ricardo Montalban exclamation point. Yay. Like I had totally yeah. forgotten he was in this movie. Cause I was so immersed in what was happening. The most romanticized circus owner ever. I've ever, I, he's the most it's... animal loving person in the film. <laughs> I guess that's part, you know, that's part of the, the level of irony that this, and sort of absurdity that this movie's worked upon that, you know, in, in our current, in, you know, 1972, the, the person who is most for animal rights is the person who oppresses animals the most. Right, exactly. Historically. So well, I guess and not that, just I that, because to... it goes a step further because everybody that works for him is familial. Mm. They all love each other. It's like, yeah. hello! And hello, I don't think and... I don't think these are the conditions that people working within no, I don't think so. on a daily basis. But, but uh, that romanticized idea of him works so well for the movie itself and be yeah and and beyond his role in the movie which is crucial this and the next movie i just like the fact that he's painted as this complete bore like he's just got with his animal facts that can scare off police officers (laughs) it's just you know like there's there's it's very dangerous when you do allegory that your characters become a symbol rather than a character. Mm-hmm. And at least in this movie, and I think the other movies too, the, the characters in these movies never become that. There's always that genuine, there's a the sense of an individual character to everybody and an emotional core and connection between everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's from this movie onwards. I don't think Beneath or even the original Planet of the Apes have that. But I think recentering the movie around a married couple is the big difference here. Like, from this point onwards, it will all be about close emotional relationships, relationships. that will carry these movies. Um, and and Well, and it's know, a little re- interesting, too, that the humans in, the, in this movie, they go steps further to help the apes in this movie, Zira and Cornelius, yeah. than Zira and Cornelius ever did for Taylor. Yes. You know, they help them escape from the military yeah. institute. They take them to Ricardo Montalban. I mean, they're they're doing everything. They get one extra kiss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> For their trouble. Right. Um should mention as well that, um Human Cornelius and Zero, one of them is played by Natalie Trundy, who 
uh, even beats Roddy McDowell's record for being in every single one of these sequels. Yeah, right. Um, and she was married to Arthur P. Jacobs, who was the producer of these movies. Oh, I didn't know and that. He, she recalls at some point during pre-production of all of these sequels, Arthur would walk into the living room and go, Natalina! And she's like, oh, I'm going to be in an apes movie. <laughs> that's amazing. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great story? Oh, that's so That's exactly great. how I assumed it played out, and apparently it played out exactly that way in real life. Oh. It's like, you're not busy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so good. And I believe that... Uh, um, know that he was dating uh, Linda Harrison. So oh, wow. Both Nova and yeah, and uh, Natalie Trundy and all her various roles in these in these uh, movies came from romantic connections with the producer, Doctor Stephanie Branton. Branton, yes, yeah. Uh, and the what's what's his name? The the male doctor is in Piranha as well. That's the other big connection I noticed. Yeah, Bradford um, something, Dill House, mm-hmm. or I forget. What's his last name? <laughs> well, I like Bradford Dill House. Um, I don't think it's Dill House, but it's Dill something. <laughs> I don't think it's Dill... Thrill House. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... it's uh, I, well, then we, have a rec- then we have a retcon of the retcon. So we made a big right. deal about how apes evolved to speak. And then, you know, in the in the birthing scene, Cornelius just says, "You know, primitive apes can't speak." It's like, well, which is it? I mean, this is like, and I gotta say that the movie, the movies as a whole, never really solve that dilemma. No, there's no scientific explanation for how human how apes learn speak, and everyone says different things about that. Well, even the. The amount of time there is between conquest and battle oh, does not seem mean, to indicate that right. there's enough time for all these apes to be speaking. <laughs> and if it does, it doesn't suggest there's enough time to produce a person like a, an ape like Virgil. Right. I think that's the <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, I love that everyone is still like like we don't really talk about it, but everyone's motivated by ape racism. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like this the ape society is incredibly racist, and everyone just kind of deals with it and reinforces it. Even Armando's like, "I like chimpanzees, best of all." Yeah, exactly. And it's like, come on, know, right? And you're the guy who's supposed to be on their side. Um, what about he's really... like, "Fuck the orangutans." Yeah. Oh, I'm going back a little bit, but I wanted just to put this out there. Mm-hmm. When did? Movies start talking about baby Hitler, and was it before this? That's <laughs> so interesting. Because that's pretty commonplace now to use the baby Hitler idea to talk about, you know, moral, moral trend travel. Prop- yeah, dilemmas. right, right. But I, I don't know when that started, but this seems early for that. As with everything that happens in this movie, it seems also, early. I was just going to say... Uh, you know, put into your Google search "baby Hitler." Yeah, who knows? Oh, I don't want to do who that knows? again. Who... <laughs> I'm not doing that again. I still can't get those pop ups away. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I kind of, I, I, 
I both like and dislike it when Cornelius says, I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> I like it because it's a great line, well delivered. It's funny because they're showing him how to use a map. He's like, no, no, I'm an archaeologist. Yeah. But I feel like this would have come up before. You wanted him to don his hat and his bullwhip? No, <laughs> no. I feel like I feel like it, it, it's it's the kind of line that should have been earlier in the movie when they were getting to know each other. Yeah, right. That it just doesn't. It resets all the progress that they've um, all made. Well, and, and then one we get thing, a. Re- I mean, this is a minor thing, but in, within the yeah. narrative, you know, they're they're escaping. They're going over the mountain. They're trying to get to the ship. Yeah, and by ship I mean boat. Boat. Yeah. Uh Disused boat. Yeah, and for no is... reason whatsoever, like, Zira's walking along, and the baby starts crying, and her solution to the baby is crying is to put down her bag. I have a theory about this. So Really, just so I the think... government could find them. So we could get yeah, to the fucking a, end of this movie, but... It's a plot convenience, yeah. but beyond that, I think it's about being in being in a phase where we want to represent women more positively and proactively, but we're still falling back on that sexist writing tendency of women are the characters who fuck everything up mm-hmm. for the other characters. Oh, okay. And I mean, you still see that in like Pulp Fiction. Yeah, right. You know, it's like, it's not, it's, it, we're still uh, cursed with that screenwriting tendency. So I think that's, aside from pure, uh, pure plot conveniences, it's like, there's no other way that, they could find these eggs. Yeah. Um, so it's like it's just a slight undercutting of Zira as a um, as the as, a feminist as the hero. right, like, right, right, right. It's like she is, but she's also a woman, so she's a big klutz and screw. And she's gonna fuck people. it up. Yeah, I th- but this this disused shipyard denouement. Oh man, I mean, it's one of the bleakest things it's I've ever so seen in any movie. Fucking dark. It's like Wait. something out of a 1970s crime thriller. My note is, holy fucking tragedy ending. Well, it's like, first of all, we've changed genres again. Yeah. Because this is like a gangster This is film total, now. yeah, exactly. This is, uh... It's like the ending of Get Carter. You know? <laughs> it's fucking horrible. And just as grim. Uh, Top of the world, less- Ma. One last, one last, they can't resist one last jab at social commentary with Zira saying, is that what man wanted oil for, to kill fish? Yeah. Great. Oh, and we have, like, we have, um, I thought it was interesting they didn't have the stomach or the budget to try and, um, visualize an ape birth. Yeah. Um, and we have a real chimpanzee. Yeah, right. We have a terrible circus chimp in a Halloween costume <laughs> with a real chimpanzee. But, I mean, this, <laughs> I just, I, every time I see this movie, I think, first of all, I think, it's a, I think it's great. Like, having a real chimpanzee and everything just makes it feel, uh, you know. It, real. It's a better, a better balance of the ape makeup yeah. and right. the reality. Um, what must that chimp be thinking? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> And I mean, this baby, baby chimp is like one of his formative experiences is he has these evolved eight parents. Yeah, because we've it's so, like, how do you send him back to his mother after that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so for those that don't know, within the narrative, Armando's like one of his uh, his actual gorilla, 
has given birth. So has Zira, and they've switched the babies. Well, it's a chimp. Or it's chimp. A, it's a chimp. Yeah. And they probably noticed if it was a gorilla, as we as we know, they're all everyone is racist towards apes. Right. Even apes. Exactly. Especially. I guess I was thinking of the zoo gorilla earlier. Yeah. Well, it's it doesn't but, look that different from the zoo right, gorilla because it looks be almost as big. <laughs> but um, so they switch babies so that their baby is safe. But that still means that a real-life chimp is just shot to shit with machine gun fire, followed by Cornelius <laughs> getting shot, falling over the fucking rail of yeah. the ship to the bottom, and just like a mind-numbing crushing of the body, because you see that fall. <laughs> and then Zira f- crawling over to his dead body and laying on top of it, Good night, nurse. Uh, like I have, I have exactly that same note. Like uh, I, I said, re- repeated shooting of a baby chimp. Oh, man. In many ways, this is light affair, but it, at its core, the despair of the series remains. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what they were going for with Cornelius's Donald Duck death rose. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if they pulled off what they were trying to do there. Um. I suppose, I, I mean, the ending, it, it, I mean, it's relentlessly bleak and, you know, that <laughs> just massacring a baby chimp is just horrible. Um, oh, man. It's another bleak, murderous ending where everyone dies. Yeah. Um, well, all the main cast die, <laughs> which can't be understated enough. This doesn't happen in most Hollywood movies. Right. Where the, the entire cast the, dies. Everyone you know and love is dead. <laughs> but... You know the the you know the, I guess you know, the the twist that beyond this means that there is there is something there's a twist there's like a twist of optimism right here. yeah, um, because you yeah I mean, you don't find out that they switched, right the chimps until, the last, seconds of the movie, exactly yeah. Um, so that is the kind of that's the the note of optimism, but such as it is, <laughs> such, such as such as it is, and it's a great, it's an excellent last second twist. You know, does its job of keeping a possibility of a sequel alive. Right, yeah. It's really good storytelling. The reverse footage is is not good <laughs> filmmaking, but I don't know how else you get a chimp to talk. Yeah. That is a real chimp, but that was probably a better way than that. But they just hadn't hadn't found it out yet. Um, well, so yeah, it's fa- fascinating. I mean, what can I say? That's that is Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Anything left for you? Do you have a? There's not really a lot of credits at the end of these movies. No, as we said, there's about four names in the credits, but um, <laughs> which is the way it should be, as far as I'm concerned. Right. But I did. I appreciated uh, the 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 credits in Beneath the Planet of the Apes are uh, silent, mm-hmm. and here we have ominous music. Right. That kind of has that soundscapey quality. That. But that, it sticks uh, with uh, the tone of the of the last half of the movie. Yeah. But you know, like having some music means it's a little more hopeful than you know the vast, fa- abject vacuum of this much hope maybe. we have yeah, in this, the. This... <laughs> it's not um... the cold vacuum of space. 
<laughs> the Earth is still here. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> it's the best we could do. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for Escape from the Planet of the Apes. If you think there's something we missed, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Send us an email to everythingsequel at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We will shout you out. Give us, uh, you know, your declarations. Give us your rankings. We want to know which one you love best. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, I am Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. Say goodbye, Tom. We've met hundreds since we've been here, and I trust three. (laughs) Great line. All right, everyone, stay tuned. The 1970s, everyone. So great. great. Conquest (laughs) of the Planet of the Apes coming up next. We'll, we'll, we'll be seeing you or you'll be hearing us soon. Take care. <laughs>